0: The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to the Paul Leslie Hour. Always a pleasure to have you listening. On this episode, it is our pleasure to welcome a multi-woodwind musician, Aaron M. Johnson, He is a saxophonist, a clarinetist, a band leader, a performer, an entertainer. Aaron, it's a great pleasure to have you with us. Oh, no, it's
1: my pleasure. Thanks for uh, reaching out.
0: I'm happy to be here. So you're, at the moment, in New York, New York.
1: Yes, I I am. It's 11 a.m. right now, which you know, it's, it's funny as a musician, our sleep schedules are so weird. So today, 11am isn't early, but some days it can be really early <laughs> if I've been working the night before. But yeah, I've been in New York since 2009. I just celebrated my 10th year this month. So it's a, it's been a, a fun journey, I guess you could call it.
0: And what brought you to New York? What was the attraction?
1: I grew up. In a small logging and fishing town on the southern Oregon coast called Coos Bay, sits right alongside Highway 101, alongside the Pacific Ocean, and as a kid, I got involved in, in music and started playing the flute and then the clarinet and the saxophone, and I ended up doing a bunch of things in high school. I... <laughs> Well, uh, good things in high school, <laughs> such as the Grammy Band and uh, uh, some of these national honor groups. And I ended up getting a scholarship to music school in New York in 2009. But I only lasted there for uh, maybe a year and a half before I came to the conclusion that the inmates were running the asylum and I needed to <laughs> to bail as soon as <laughs> possible from that situation. So, yeah, I, I came here to study the Manhattan School Music, yeah. When I was a kid in Oregon, though, uh, I actually, the other day, I, I just lost my teacher, my longtime teacher, a man named Matt Utah. And Matt was the first saxophone player, lead alto player with uh, Les Brown and his band of renown for 33 years. And he played on all the different TV shows. He was on staff at NBC. He played on Laughing, Name That Tune, Jerry Lewis Show, Dinah Shore, Dean Martin Show, Jerry Lewis Specials. I mean, he did all these great things in his career, played with all the great big bands from Les Brown to Benny Goodman to uh, Alvino Ray, Billy May, Gordon Jenkins. You know, He just had a a very long career. And so I was fortunate to meet him when I was 11 years old and he started me. I had been playing a little bit of flute, but I had just started playing clarinet and I was interested in, in the clarinet. And so we started working on classical clarinet and at the time, I had I had been playing for maybe a year and a half, and I, I couldn't read music, and I did everything by ear. And so he taught me how to read from the ground up and started me on clarinet. Then we moved to saxophone. Then we added flute again, and he sort of brought me up. I played my first gig ever with him. He, he got me on a little steady big band gig at a casino on the coast on Sundays when I was I guess, 12 or 13 years old. And I was too young to play the gig. And by that, I mean, I couldn't leave the bandstand because the Oregon liquor laws are pretty stringent. So (laughs) I couldn't leave the the stand on any of the breaks. Yeah, but I I just just lost him at the age of, I guess, 92, 91. He he was born in 1926 and just passed away a couple of days ago. So that's how I came up in in the music.
0: Well, first of all, I, I am sorry for your loss.
1: Oh, no worries.
0: But I would like to know, amongst these instruments that you're proficient at, saxophone, flute, clarinet, do you have a favorite sound? Is there an an instrument you find yourself more attracted to?
1: Well, I'm kind of uh, bipolar with my musical tastes, and playing a variety of instruments allows me to sort of jump into different aesthetics that are more suited to those instruments. So I became when I moved to New York, I pretty immediately got involved in playing traditional jazz music. And this was right before there was a big sort of revival of that style of music with a lot of young musicians taking it up and playing that stuff around the time that I got to town, maybe a couple of years afterward. And so I was one of the first young people of the current Crop to get to town and start working with people. My first gig was with, in New York, was with Saul Yeget at the Edison Hotel, who, and he just passed away. And Saul must have been 96 or 97, but he was Benny Goodman's protege. He was actually at the 1938 Carnegie Hall concert, the Goodman concert. that was the first jazz concert at, at Carnegie Hall. He, uh, was a technical consultant on the 1955 film, The Benny Goodman Story, and he taught Steve Allen how to play the clarinet. So I got involved in playing traditional jazz and swing when I, I moved to town. I've also always been into the music post-war jazz, you know, and Charlie Parker and that music. And so that's influenced by sa- my alto saxophone playing a lot, playing tenor saxophone. I draw a lot of it. Influences. I also like some of the sort of groovier tenor players, like Eddie Lockjaw Davis, is a huge influence of mine. I love Zoot Sims's tenor playing, so I kind of stick in 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 that sort of zone on the tenor. And then playing flute is a whole other thing. And there's, you know, there is a tradition of jazz flute. When I got to New York, I was fortunate to to be able to hang out some with Frank West, who might be the preeminent jazz flutist. But, you know, flute has hundreds of years of music written for it, as opposed to the clarinet. You know, the clarinet you have, maybe the earliest major piece was, you know, the Mozart concerto, which was from like 1790, 1791. Whereas with the flute, you have all of this music from Bach and Handel that you can play on it. And so it's been, you know, a real challenge getting into sort of classical or legit flute playing since i moved to new york because i didn't come up doing that i got into it when i, I moved here i started studying with a guy named harold jones who was a commercial broadway flute player classical flute player who taught some jazz guys like Yusef latif and eric dolphy and harold was still alive when i got to town so i studied with him for the better part of my first school year, and he really stressed the importance. He said, you know, you're playing great music on the flute. You know, I was playing like jazz or bebop flute, kind of a la Sam Most with a really breathy sound. But he really strived for me to get into the classical traditions on the instrument. I just play whatever uh, instrument suits the music that I'm dealing with. And I like a lot of different music. And also, you know, you can play different uh types of Latin and Caribbean music on the flute that you that aren't as appropriate to play on other instruments. You know, if you, you play all the woodwinds, I mean, I don't actually play double reeds. I've never done that. But there's, you know, a lot of doubling work in New York for either shows everywhere from community theater and high school musicals to Broadway shows. And a lot of times if you know, you're not busy doing jazz stuff, it's nice to at least be considered for that work or have access to that work.
0: Is there any instrument that you don't play that you're thinking of picking up?
1: Well, everybody tells me to play the oboe. Sometimes I get called to play alpha saxophone for the Metropolitan Opera here in New York, and whenever an opera uses a saxophone. So for instance, a couple years ago, they had one pop up and it's Puccini's Turandot. And that uses two alto saxophones at various points within the opera. So there's a lot of sitting around and, and waiting. And there's a great New York saxophone player named Alan Wan, who is a commercial doubler, Broadway sort of guy, studio musician. And he was stressing to me, he said, man, you really just need to learn oboe because a lot of Show work and Broadway work depends on playing double reeds as well. That wasn't always the case. You know, the the whole doubling on all the flutes, all the saxophones, all the clarinets, that was sort of the old school approach. Now it's doing that plus playing oboe and English horn. And then uh, there's even a couple of people in New York that even play bassoon as well. So that's not really been my interest. Personally, I don't feel those instruments are flexible enough for what I do, which is play all different types of music. I mean, if I wanted to really become more of a classical musician or something like that this late in the game, then, yeah, it would probably be necessary for me to learn how to play oboe. But, you know, that's that's an idea on the back burner. But as of right now, I play, you know, piccolo through bass flute, all the clarinets, E-flat, B-flat, A clarinet, bass clarinet. I play alto, tenor, saxophone, soprano, alto, and tenor saxophones. I don't play baritone, um, which is kind of its own other world. So I guess to answer that question, I I would probably pick up the oboe, maybe, if I had a lot of free time. But a more practical one would probably be the baritone saxophone, would probably be the next one. But I, I'm really not looking to, <laughs> to play anymore. I have to practice too much as it is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when you moved to New York from Oregon, I'm curious to know the people around you. What did they think of that? Did they think, oh, Aaron is crazy. He's going to move to New York. How did you feel about it? I'm curious.
1: Well, I had been living on my own for a few years prior to coming to New York. Um, And when I was a sophomore in high school, I moved from my small town of Coos Bay up to Portland. My mother uh, got remarried and was living up there. And I moved there because there – I had a great teacher in Matt, Utah, in Coos Bay, but there weren't a lot of other dedicated young students for me to, to play with and to grow with. And in Portland at that time, there was a program there called the American Music Program led by a guy named Thera Memory, who passed away maybe a year and a half ago. And there I had this all-star high school band that would win every competition that we would go to. I Everything from the Lionel Hampton competition in Idaho to the Monterey Next Generation Jazz competition to the Jazz at Lincoln Center Essentially Ellington competition. I mean, we did all of these things in high school. And uh, it was a really structured, disciplined program we all we wore white tuxedo jackets like the Ellington band and would play our entire sets from memory it, you know when you're dealing with 18 young musicians memorizing an entire hour-long set of music uh, and all of the the harmony parts and everything that's a, a lot of work and so I moved to Portland and was involved in this and traveling around to do all the competitions I did that for my sophomore year my junior year of high school I then went to study at the Interlochen Arts Academy. Have you heard of Interlochen before?
0: I uh, confess I have not.
1: Okay, so it's uh, a camp that started—well, Interlochen Center for the Arts is in Michigan. It's right outside of Traverse City, and I guess that would be the northwestern part of Michigan. And I went to the camp for four summers— they have a group there, the World Youth Symphony Orchestra. They have a lot of uh, of different things for, for young players there. And it's sort of the best of the best, mostly classical musicians from all around the world. And that was an amazing experience to be around all of these great players at a, at a young age. But then I went to study there at the boarding school when I was 16. I was there for uh, a year. And then I decided I didn't really like that. I'm not an academic, uh, academically inclined sort of person. So I decided I didn't like that, and I went back to Oregon. By that time, my mom and stepdad had split up, and my choice was to go back to Coos Bay or live in Portland. At this time, it was really cheap to live in Portland. It was before the, the big housing boom out there. And so I lived in Portland on my own for a year and just sort of dropped out of school and decided I would get a GED and try to go to one of these elite music schools. And at the time I thought I was going to do it for classical clarinet. And so I auditioned for all of these schools and was pretty set on either going to the uh, conservatory or Peabody Institute in Baltimore. But right before you know, I could, uh, declare where I was going or whatever. I won the lead alto chair in the Grammy Band. And the Grammy Band is uh, a big band of kids from all over the United States and Canada that I don't know if it still exists. I think it does. It might exist under a different name. Before the Grammy sponsored it, it was called the McDonald's All American Jazz Band. And it's sort of the national honor band. And when I did it, you you would go to Santa Monica and stay at a hotel for a week and a half and rehearse and then perform at all the different Grammy Foundation events during Grammy week and then get to perform for the after party of the awards and get to watch the Grammy Awards and, you know, mingle with a bunch of great jazz musicians. On that trip, I met James Moody and Hank Jones and Bob Belden and a a bunch of people. Through that, I was offered a bunch of full scholarships to various schools and i decided i would go to the new school but right before i was able to confirm going to the new school i was offered the presidential scholarship at the manhattan school of music and so i you know switched it all up and went to study jazz at the manhattan school of music mostly because they had a very lax policy as opposed to other schools where you can study you could study with school faculty as well you could take uh split up your lessons so when I went to Manhattan school, I ended up studying classical clarinet with the former principal clarinetist at the New York City Opera, Charles Russo. I was with Charlie for a couple of years or a year and a half before he died. I studied with George Garzon, who's kind of a modern jazz legend on tenor saxophone. I studied for a semester with Joe Temperley, who passed away. who was a baritone saxophonist with Wynton Marsalis in the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, so that was how I got to New York, and I. And to, so to answer your question, I it wasn't much of a transition because I had been living alone for a while, and people in my hometown, well, I don't know what they thought. I had been playing, you know, pretty seriously for a long time, and it, it seemed like the the natural thing to do would be for me to move to either New York or Los Angeles. And being that I went to boarding school, I never learned how to drive, <laughs> and so New York, I still don't know how to drive. So New York. Uh, <laughs> fits with my lifestyle a bit, but more succinctly. And so I, I, I've, you know, I've wanted to leave at different points, but it would be so hard to, to uproot yourself and sort of establish yourself in a new place after you've been here for a decade. So I'll probably just stick it
0: out in New York. How does New York suit you?
1: Oh, well, it's uh, an incredibly fast pace. When I first got here, it was inspiring to be around so many serious musicians that were all better than me and all i did was practice i mean all day every day for years it would not be it would be odd for me not to put in a good seven hours practicing on top of playing gigs and taking lessons and that's another thing i always have studied with somebody i've always Studied privately, regardless of where I'm at in my career, and regardless of how busy I get, because I always need to feel a sense of growth happening. I always need to feel a kineticism, you know, in my life. Uh, otherwise, I, you know, it's it's you can get stuck, and I've I've seen a lot of my peers get stuck. In one way, I've I've gotten around that, and have sort of slowly progressed. You know, I'm not the most talented person, but I'm really working. And over time, if you combine your work ethic with just a number of hours, you know, it's, it's hard for, <laughs> to, to not play good. <laughs> you know, it would be difficult to put in as much time and not play good. Yeah. So New York has this great energy about it that's inspiring. I don't know how it fits my life now. I mean, I don't really know how to live as an adult in any other situation. I have, you know, two dogs and I live in a loft here in the South Bronx that used to be a former piano factory. Yeah, the the only thing that that is difficult is traveling for work with my dogs, but I have a sort of network of close friends that have been very generous in uh in taking care of them when I have to go out for gigs, which is, incre- has become increasingly frequent. This summer, I was doing a lot of zigzagging across the United States. And last summer, too.
0: Is there any recordings in the work?
1: Yes. I have two albums that were recorded within the last year. Um, In January, I took a band into Flux Studios in Manhattan, and uh, we recorded a 12-track, I think, 11- or 12-track record And it was produced by Kemp Aplowski, who is probably, in my estimation, the greatest living jazz clarinetist or maybe just the greatest living clarinetist in in general. He's uh, he's one of the most open minded, diverse musicians, you know, you'll ever meet. And so he helped me put this whole thing together. And we're right now. It's been mixed and mastered and we're just sort of shopping around for uh, labels that I mean, we have some you know, some people are interested, but we don't want to say anything just yet. But it should be be out within a matter of, you know, months, less than a year. And then the other album is a live recording, um, trio with myself and the legendary jazz bassist Chuck Israels. And Chuck replaced Scott LaFarro and the Bill Evans trio after LaFerro's untimely death in I think nineteen sixty three or so. And he was with Bill Evans for the better part of a decade. And he lives on the West Coast. He actually lives in Portland now. He wasn't living in Portland when I lived there, so I didn't know him then. And this was actually the the first time I had ever met Chuck. But the pianist on the, the album is a guy named Jordan Piper. Actually, Jordan is the pianist on both records. And Jordan grew up in Bellingham, Washington, where Chuck had sort of settled into a teaching position. He had uh, tried to create a sort of conservatory at a uh, at a college there and you know it, i don't know if it drew its many students or whatever but i think that he was focusing on on teaching rather than playing for a while and he met jordan in that capacity and hold on one second let me a, a dog is misbehaving <laughs> <laughs> but i met chuck through jordan and i put together some gigs out in Oregon. We did a night at a club called the Jazz Station in Eugene. That was our rehearsal. You know, I walked in and Chuck and I shook hands and he said, what are we playing? And I pulled out a folder and we just went for it. And then the next day we did a big concert for the Oregon Coast Music Festival, which is the oldest and largest music festival on the Oregon Coast. or It's one of the bigger ones in the state of Oregon. They have a full 80 piece symphony orchestra there. And each year they have one jazz artist to do a big concert in a boathouse. And so we recorded that live. Actually, the guy that engineered it is, is sort of a local legendary recording guy in Oregon. And he recorded my first audition tape to Interlock when I was twelve years old. And it's funny because now he recorded my first live album all these years later. And so we're going to be putting that Record out in the next few months on a, a new imprint called Soul Kid Jazz that is run by a friend of mine, Joey Cavasino. And Joey Cavasino, aside from being a great music producer, he has a hip hop label called Chamber Music with a K. He was affiliated for years with the Wu Tang Clan and has produced a lot of music. And he just had uh, one of his tunes placed in the new Spider Band movie and stuff. And so He's been doing that, but prior to all of his music business sort of endeavors, he was one of the most recognized jazz alto saxophonists on the scene. And he was lead alto with the Illinois Jacket Band. And he played with Panama Francis voice Sultans. And he, uh, played with Lionel Hampton. He was sort of a child prodigy in the, the jazz thing. And I met Joey actually on Facebook because he he was one of my favorite alto players and i knew that he wasn't on the scene so i kept asking about him and everybody said oh he got into hip hop and he's you know a, a music producer and he doesn't live in new york anymore and then i found him and it turned out he lives in eastern pennsylvania which is only you know a stone throw away from new york city and i was taking my quartet down to the philadelphia museum of art to play for their jazz series and after the gig, the bass player and I drove out to Easton and we sat up until five in the morning having coffee and talking about music with, with Joey Cavasino. And so right then he, we just started talking about recording and projects and we had meant to, to do something. And now's the perfect time because I have this record. So we're going to put it out on his new label and it's called Soul Kid Jazz. And he's been putting out, um, reissues of, Things from Duke Ellington, Lawrence Brown, Johnny Hodges. He just put out a, a re-release of Turk Morrow's record. It's coming out in October. And Turk Morrow was a great saxophonist uh, in New York for many years who was sort of a protege of, of Zoot Sims. And he just died a few days ago. And now his music's going to be put out through Soul Kid Jazz. Yeah, that's, that's what I've been up to. And we're, we're just looking forward to, to getting all of this music out there. And I also finally just got a website at AaronMJohnsonJazz.com. So you can follow me on there, and I'll be putting a, a newsletter out every month. You know, I've spent so much time on the, the musical aspects of my career that I often... I've spent so much time as a sideman to to players, you know, that now as I'm, I'm sort of breaking out on my own and doing my own gigs and stuff, it's n- now absolutely necessary to have, you know, a website and a mailing list and all of that business type of stuff that somehow I got away with not having for 10 years. So.
0: All right. We'll look forward to the website, Aaron M. I want to yes. go back to Ken Poplowski for a moment. He's yeah. someone I got hooked on his records and You've had the chance to get to know him and perform alongside him. What is Ken like? What, tell us about the guy.
1: Well, he uh, he's a genius. But then you have to also realize that when a person is a genius, they probably work like a genius, too. And so he works excruciatingly long hours at his craft. Uh, he practices more than everybody else. He is on the road more than everybody else. And as a result, that level of playing, he's ma- maintaining a level and a standard of playing that you just don't see in jazz anymore. You know, he, first of all, he's a virtuoso on his instruments at, to the highest level possible you can reach in the classical sense or whatever. He can play anything you put in front of him. But he's also an incredible musical director and uh, incredible at picking out set lists he's uh, putting together repertoire for concerts he's great at programming he's he's a genius programmer and he does it in such a non-pretentious sort of relaxed way that it it never feels you know and when you're working with ken it never feels kind of uh, stiff you know sometimes when you plan things out or things can feel stiff on the bandstand but ken gets everything organized, has a set list and everything, and he, I've never heard him tell a person to play differently. He just picks the people that he likes and then just lets them go for it, you know, and really trusts you, which is so different than a lot of band leaders you can uh work for. On a personal note, he has been a very, very good friend to me and a mentor and a father figure for me out here in New York. I, You know, I don't have any family out here, and... Ken has really been a gracious person in including me in a lot of his projects and, and just being a good friend and going and grabbing a meal and catching up and talking about life. And, you know, as you know, you've seen him live, right? Yeah, you, know, you know how funny he is, right? That he's, he could have been a stand-up comedian, you know, he really knows how to work a room and his stage presentation is immaculate. He. He comes up with these sort of one liners and rebuttals that feel like he lifted him from Don Rickles, but he makes them up himself, you know, and he's, you know, I, I can't say enough about him. He's just a great person. He's the reason why I got to work with Dick Hyman, which is one of my absolute highlights in my career. He, you know, he's he's helped me a lot. He's opened a lot of doors for me in the the music business sort of thing. Uh, pretty much all of the big gigs that I've had the past year, or the well, I met Ken three or four years ago. He's, you know, all of the the bigger sort of things featuring me, you know, festivals and all of that stuff have been through him. So I I can't say enough about him. And also he was a hero of mine from the time I was a little kid. So actually I'll tell you how we met. I was obsessed with his plane for years and years and years and I even went to the point got to the point where I was learning his solos off the record when I was in high school and college and learning to to try to mimic him you know and since then I've tried to to kind of get away from that because that's that's fine when you're a certain age but as you get older you really have to sort of bring your own thing to the table and it's not Imitation isn't flattery. At a certain point, anyway, I had Ken's sound and concept in my ear for years. My um, first album I ever got was one he did in '99 called "The Last Swing of the Century," and I remember us ordering it at the local CD store. And I got my copy, and I just fell in love with his his playing. Flash forward to um, the fall of uh, the fall of 2016 or 2015, either or, I, I forget what year it was, but I got called to play a record date for this great jazz scholar, writer, historian, saxophonist, composer, Alan Lowe. And Alan is a great musical matchmaker. He loves to get people from opposite ends of the musical spectrum and throw them into the same room. And a lot of times it can create a very compelling music when Alan puts all of these sort of disparate, you know, p- people in the same room and just has them go for it on his uh, compositions. And so I got called to play one of these record dates with two clarinets actually the whole session is going to be out or it's already out it's already out on esp records and a, a set of, i i forget how many discs it's like a five or six disc set of alan lowe's stuff and i'm on a few of the records and ken is too but there's one that's uh two clarinets and then alan on saxophone and the rhythm section and he called me to play the other clarinet part and so I showed up to the rehearsal, and I was on the street, and I see Ken Paplowski, and I, I said, hey, are, are you Ken Paplowski? And he looked at my clarinet case, and he said, yeah, you know, you could see that maybe he was a little bit hesitant, like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> and we went up to the rehearsal, and then I took my horn out and started playing some scales, and he said, oh, wow, you have a real clarinet sound, because, you know, one of Ken's sort of pet peeves is like, there is a certain way that the clarinet was played before Benny Goodman and Shaw. There's a a kind of sort of dirty New Orleans, greasy, slippery, slighty, out-of-tune way of playing the clarinet that was just sort of a product of that time and the recording that the recording technology of that time. And And Ken always thinks, you know, why are are young people trying to imitate that? Why don't they try to play the music that those guys were playing, but play with a contemporary, refined, beautiful, in-tune, sort of classically influenced sound? So that sort of connected us. And right on the dot, well, he asked me where I was from, and I told him I grew up on the Oregon coast. And so immediately, he called a conductor friend of his, Yaki Bergman, who used to be the conductor at the 92nd Street Y in New York for years, and he's another Dick Hyman sort of associate, and they do this festival at Siletz Bay, which is three hours north of where I grew up on the Oregon coast, and it's at a resort called Salishan, and they've been doing it for maybe, I don't know, eight years or something, but I've played there for the past three summers. And so immediately he got me a gig playing clarinet in the orchestra. And then Ken puts me on the jazz concert. So I'll go there and we'll have a week of orchestra stuff. So like three concerts, rehearsals every day. Plus we'll do two, maybe three jazz shows at night. The first year that I went, the schedule was so insane. It was, I played three orchestra concerts, lead alto and a big band concert featuring Ken up front doing his thing. And then two Ken concerts. And then we did another weekend at sort of an extension of the festival, did a jazz party in Florence, Oregon of two concerts. And we had Pete Barbeauty, the great jazz comedian who used to be on Johnny Carson and stuff. He was out there, got to work with Dick to make that. And he ended up having some health issues but Dick has has been involved in Solet's base since its inception. Inception, but is not going to. be. This is Dick Hyman we're talking about, but he won't be uh, returning because right now he's he's in fine health, but he's not traveling anymore because of some, I think he has a pacemaker or some type of heart issues. So he's staying local in Florida, which is fine. I, I was just down there. I saw him in March, and we played at the Sarasota Jazz Festival. I did a a main set one of the nights. And then I I got to sit in with with Dick on the last set of the last night. And it was great to to see him. But yes, that's how I met Ken. And just from the beginning, he hooked me up with work and we became really good friends. We both like old movies and old music and rare recordings and, you know, all of that type of nerdy stuff. I don't know if you'd appreciate me calling it nerdy stuff, but it's nerdy. And we really good friends, and that's how it all all happened.
0: I'm glad you mentioned and we're talking about Dick Hyman. He was a guest on this show and what a thrill that was. But there's a great oh, picture wow. of you and to one side of you is Ken Poplowski and the other side is Dick Hyman. And I'm just curious to know, is it ever intimidating? To play with someone like Dick Hyman, or to be around someone like Dick Hyman, or is that something you're just always confident about?
1: Well, Dick makes it easy to be around Dick Hyman. There are a lot of great musicians, who I will not name, who make it very uncomfortable for young musicians to work with them, and they're always trying to test the young musicians. But with Dick, he's been so kind and gracious. from the When I met him, I, I met him at one of the musician dinners, at Siletz Bay, the first one, and I ended up sitting down at his table, and Ken wasn't there yet to introduce us, and I, he asked me what I and I said, oh, I'm the, the woodwind doubler at this festival, because they usually put me, they'll have me play clarinet in the orchestra. Last summer I did, you know, played flute clarinet phone for a sort of show production type of show. And stuff. So anyway, they said, oh, you're my saxophone player, and he pulled out this copy of The Cotton Club Stomp from Ellington, and he wrote out Johnny Hodges' solo for me to play on one of the concerts. And so we started talking about old jazz and Bix and Don Murray, and I think he was surprised that a a young guy is into that stuff. And but I think that more than just being into it, a young guy who is into the the entire jazz spectrum, because usually you'll find young sort of fanatic jazz musicians who are into early jazz and everything, but maybe haven't developed themselves as instrumentalists. You see a lot of that because the the music in 20s jazz, you can get away with a lot. You know, a lot of those guys played with sort of rougher, coarse sounds, you know, the clarinet players, at least, as we were just talking about. And so a lot of times the musicians, especially the young musicians, can be kind of closed minded and only do that one style but my my sort of conception aesthetic goes from Louis armstrong through you know up through charlie parker and all of that music and similarly dick's is like that i mean dick played the opening of birdland and the opposite band he was with lester young and the opposite band i think he was with lester young and max kaminsky but the opposite band was bird and lenny cristano and all of the the modern people and so dick was nice to me from the get-go after our, the first gig that I played with them, we went to the lounge at the resort, and Dick and uh, Julia Hyman bought me dessert and cake and some drinks. And we just talked about life for a couple of hours, and they were so kind. And what struck me was, here are these two incredibly accomplished people— And they were interested in, you know, where I was from, you know, what, what did my parents do? You know, what was it like growing up in Oregon? And we talked a lot about musicians and everything. Yeah. I think Dick, Dick and Ken and a few other people, Slide Hampton is one of them. Chuck Israel's Connie Crothers. These people are, have all made me feel very at home and welcome in the music and have made me feel like a a colleague you know sometimes when you're playing with older musicians they'll treat you like a student and you know frankly i am a student i'm a perpetual student you know and i'm always trying to learn and grow and get better but when you're a musician i'm almost 30 years old there has to be a point where you say okay i'm going onto the bandstand i'm going to play And I'm a professional. I'm going to do this, and we're all colleagues here. And if you don't have that sort of vibe, that energy on the bandstand, it's not going to work out as well. You know, it'll sound like a bunch of kids accompanying a master. You know, as opposed to you know four great musicians playing together. So yeah, I'm I really appreciate Dick's kindness and generosity, and making me feel like you know a member of uh, a club of musicians. You know that. I've always aspired to be a member of, you know?
0: Well, on the note of Expanding Horizons, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't you collaborate or perform with Art Garfunkel Jr.?
1: Yes. Yeah, we actually, Art Garfunkel Jr. is a friend of mine. He started showing up. I was the musical director at a lounge on the Upper East Side, this you know, Michelin-starred French restaurant called Vaucluse, and on one side is the restaurant and dining room. The other side is the nightclub. It's since changed, and the nightclub is called Omar's Uptown. And Omar's is a very famous sort of discotheque club downtown Manhattan. And now they've turned the jazz lounge at Vaucluse into, you know, kind of a seedy discotheque. And there's been all kinds of problems with it. But while I was doing it, I was there two years, and I was there at least two times a week. And then booking other bands there and then, you know, I was also doing all the private events there and everything. Art Junior would come and sit in with us. And so he started coming in and singing with my band. We had a gig planned for Le Poison Rouge, but I ended up having a scheduling conflict and wasn't able to do it. But we've been talking recently about putting together a project and maybe recording it and taking it out on the road, which would be uh, you know, a thrill. And, and playing jazz, you know, he he oftentimes performs with his father and he does, you know, sing that music, but his real passion is the American songbook and he sounds great doing it. But in the pop realm, I also worked with this guy, Lee DeWise. That was the first sort of major road gig that I ever did. And Lee won American Idol in 2009. And, since it was one of the earlier years, now, you know, it seems that show's been on for so long, It whoever wins it, it's probably not much of a big deal. But he was right at the end of the sort of golden age of that TV show. And so he had the big record contract and all of that stuff. And we went out and did some dates across the United States. Some of them are on uh, YouTube, if you look them up, playing all duo. And I had all my instruments out. And he never told me what to do. You, you know, he would play his songs and then just sort of open up and just say blow. And so it was all by ear and it wasn't just like, you know, one set should one song, a set or something. It was no, the entire set. And so he does that. Now I think he has a, a fiddle player to, playing that sort of role as his sort of solo instrument on the road with him. But he was really supportive of my playing. And sometimes when he's in New York, he plays like the iridium and I'll go down there and sit in with them Or Rockwood or or whatever. But uh, in general, you know, that music doesn't speak to me uh, as much as jazz and classical music does. So I've never really tried to network or find connections in that scene and build a career in that scene because it's just so opposite as to what I do. But if, you know, somebody in the pop realm likes what I do and wouldn't want me to change it and be sort of like a studio musician about it. Yeah, of course, I would work with anybody, you know. That's the good thing about being a jazz musician. What you do, if you're doing it well, you know, you can you can put it into sort of any environment and it can sort of exist. You know, Wynton Marsalis does that type of stuff all the time. He did, you know, a record with Willie Nelson and, uh, you know, he, Eric Clapton, and he's done all of these different records. So, you know, that's a great example of, you know, of somebody that is broad-minded.
0: Who would be an example of someone that you haven't worked with, and I want you to feel free to dream as big as you as you like, anybody living, that is, who would you like to work with one day?
1: Oh, gosh, I would love to, to sub in or get the Jazz at Lincoln Center gig with Wynton Marsalis. You know, I've kind of existed in the outer perimeters of that orbit for many years now from... You know, I used to lead groups for the late night series at Disney's Club Coca Cola, and I do a lot of lecturing work at Jazz at Lincoln Center. I've I've been, I've uh, moderated panels. I've given a lot of pre concert lectures for the orchestra. Done a lot of educational events. I just did a sort of seminar and slideshow and performance with the pianist Terry Waldo in July on the music and life of the jazz innovator Frankie Trumbauer from the 1920s. And so getting more involved with jazz and Lincoln center and a playing capacity would be, would be nice, but it's also something that I haven't really pursued because I've been so busy and also so fortunate that I haven't had to do a ton of hustling. It seems like my career has evolved in more of an old school sort of way where people over time have reached out to me as opposed to me reaching out to them. And, you know, at, it took me a long time to get to this point. You know, there were years At first, where I was playing in Central Park nine hours and just with a hat out with me and a bass player and a drummer, sometimes another saxophone player, and playing everything from Rotary Conventions in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, dressed in a Revolutionary War costume, playing a piccolo, to uh, playing a high school musical on Staten Island. I mean, I have done hundreds and hundreds of gigs like that I I did when I my first five years in town and during my first five years in town yeah I would get you know occasionally a a bigger gig or you know I played with probably every working big band in town that isn't I'm that plays big band swing type of music you know not the like the vanguard jazz orchestra or anything like that but all of the the local sort of Little swing bands. I used to play at Swing 46 so often that there was one week where I was working there, something like six or seven nights, and that I came to this conclusion that I cannot keep doing gigs like that. So um, over time, I've been able to sort of restrict a lot of my work and take better things, you know, like, uh, I, this, this summer, I had a bunch of things. I, am the artist in residence for, uh, well, one of the artists in residence for, a group called the Catskill Jazz Factory, which is sort of an extension of Jazz and Lincoln Center in the, the Catskill Mountains. It was founded by a great arts philanthropist named Piers Playfair, and he sort of is the executive artistic director. And then it was sort of helped and found being founded by a guy named Seton Hawkins, who is the education director or one of the education outreach people at uh, Jazz and Lincoln Center. And Seton is responsible for a lot of my work with Jazz and Lincoln Center. So, well, Catskill Jazz has produced four commission projects from me. And so uh, the first one was a West Coast jazz history or a retrospective of West Coast jazz from the 1950s and 60s. And I did that with rhythm section. My old friend, Veronica Swift, a singer you've probably heard. Have you heard of Veronica yet?
0: That name rings a bell. Definitely.
1: Yeah, she's uh, she's kind of the hot new thing in jazz. And I've been working with her for a long time in different capacities. And we did the first thing was a West Coast jazz project up there. And then that was at Bard College. Then we did a, a jazz meets classical music of Sydney Bechet juxtaposed with the operatic arias of Giacomo Puccini. We did a concert of that music. We did a few concerts of my Swing in the Songbook program, which is a jazz at the Philharmonic inspired jam session concept where we get a bunch of young lion sort of players and then match them up with some, you know, older experienced players. Like we just had Joey Cavassino and the great trumpet player Dwayne Clemens play with us doing that program in July. I had John Eric Kelso do it the summer before, you know, where we had this big sort of onstage jazz party. And that's another person that you've interviewed that has been very kind to me is uh, John Eric Kelso. And his gig on Sundays at the N in uh, Manhattan is a legendary gig, and that's one of my favorites to do. It's always great to do that gig, you know. Yeah, I've done a bunch of stuff in the cast. What was the question again? I think we got off.
0: <laughs> I think uh, I was asking you about who you would like to work with.
1: Yeah. So, so Winton, you know, would be somebody that would be, be interesting for me to, to work with. As far as name brand jazz people, the thing is, you know, there aren't a lot of name brand jazz anything. And even the, the biggest names, you know, aside from Winton Marsalis, it, there's a joke, you know, in the jazz community of this, this term called jazz famous. You know, you could be famous in the jazz world, but still totally unknown to the sort of broader world. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess it would have to be, When, I mean, I would love to play as a soloist with, with orchestras. I would love to do that. I would love to put together a sort of clarinet summit, you know, with other jazz clarinet players and heroes of mine, you know, like it would be amazing to do a clarinet thing with somebody like Eddie Daniels, Ken, and I, you know, do something like that. Just all kinds of things. But I mean, as far as hero heroes go, I've worked with Enough that my list is, is, is satiated, <laughs> you know. I feel blessed to have gotten to work with people like Dick and Slide Hampton.
0: When we consider all of these things, what is the best thing about being Aaron M. Johnson?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. It, certain would, it certainly wouldn't be tax rates. <laughs> Let me think. I think that I've been blessed to have a broad and diverse musical experience. And I think, it, you know, so other musicians, when they get to New York, they have a lot of allegiance to maybe one scene and come up in one scene. And I've so, sort of floated between all of the different sort of niche jazz scenes, you know, and communities. And it's it's been a blessing to get to see a sort of broader picture of the music as opposed to coming here and only playing swing clarinet or coming here and, and only doing modern jazz original compositions. You know, I've done a little bit of all of these things and it's, you know, it's, it's helped me keep moving forward because there's always a new goal and those goals change too. You know, I often look for little things to change in my, my playing that might take a couple of months and then I'll do it and I'm, I'm off to the next thing. And so I think that, that, yeah, just being able to be a working musician in New York and getting to work with so many inspiring players and also that I'm finally at the point where I don't have to take the worst of the worst of the worst gigs, you know, like I I don't have to go take a $50 bar gig anymore, you know, which is – a really good place to be, but that's why I'm getting my uh, my social media and website and everything together now because to stay at that place, it has to be maintained. So I can, you know. So right now, I'm just working on a winter calendar and some touring and stuff like that. So just the, the ability to be able to do all of this stuff and juggle it as gracefully as I can, I'm able to, which can range from okay and pretty gracefully to just a complete train wreck disaster. Just the, having the opportunity to pursue all of this stuff is a blessing. I think that's the the best thing about my life. Besides my dogs and my girlfriend, who's over here in the corner glaring at me. <laughs> so.
0: Okay, so I'm going to do, as we close here, a little lightning round. And yeah. you don't have to think about it too much. A favorite movie?
1: Oh, The Graduate, Pillow Talk. The Lolita uh, with James Mason. Oh, North by Northwest.
0: A great place to eat in New York City.
1: Oh, that's an easy one. One of Ken's favorites and one of my favorites is a place called Little Poland. And it is great Polish diner food. And that's down in the East Village. And it's great for Italian food. There's nothing better than pasticci. Uh, up by the Manhattan School of Music in Morningside Heights, kind of by Columbia University. It's a great Italian restaurant, and they have amazing lamb and ricotta maltagliati that uh, is to die for.
0: A great record.
1: A great record. We're talking about Ken, Ken one of Ken's early records, Side." I love. Sunny Stitch. Uh, New York Jazz, Live in Boston, Wa- Charlie Parker, the Washington DC concert. I love a lot of live jazz recordings and I like pretty much anything that came out on Concord Records when Carl Jefferson was there and was producing people like Ken and Dick and Scott Hamilton and all of those great players. But I mean, that's a hard question. There's so many great albums, you know?
0: Absolutely. A thing you love about your girlfriend.
1: Oh, thing I love about my girlfriend. Well, uh, I I love that she is is just as completely bonkers and insane as me and can sort of see a method to my madness, which previous relationships ha- have been hard. You know, I'm always going from place to place and everything and my life is really erratic. So, uh the her ability to sort of uh take all of that in stride has been essential to our relationship. <laughs>
0: And my last question is limitless. It's not limited to music. You can go anywhere you like. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in?
1: Oh, well, my teacher, Matt Utah, who just passed away, was about the kindest, sweetest, and gentlest person that I've ever met. And the other night, my mother and I were talking. She said, well, Aaron, all you can do now is go and play your horn and, you know, Play for Matt's legacy. And I said, well, you know, that's, that's all good and everything. And music is important. And I think that I've lived up to Matt's musical ambitions and ideals for me and lived up to what he wanted for me, but uh, musically, but I think that now would be a great time in all of our lives in this crazy divided country in 2019 and everything to just try to be a kinder and gentler and sweeter person and to treat your neighbor with love. I think that that, that's something that as I've gotten older, I I used to feel as though nothing mattered in being an artist except for the level of playing and how great you have to be to be able to succeed and trying to go after all these goals. And I think because of that, I've been a rather abrasive, hard to work with, hard to deal with person with my own peer group. You know, also, I mean, my development and growth. I moved here when I was a teenager, you know, and so to grow up on the New York jazz scene is a pretty public way of any failure you're going to have. And so I think that in pursuit of these sort of larger than life dreams for a kid from Oregon, I could get caught up in them and not be the most pleasant person to be around. And so now I'm really making an active pursuit of being as as kind and easygoing as I possibly can be. And I would urge everybody else to do that, because when you start looking at life through the prism of what can I do for another person, as opposed to what can I do to better myself, if that's out of proportion, you know, and if you can get that into proportion, you'll be a much happier person. And that's something that I'm working on every day.
0: Well spoken. Aaron. Paul. It's been an honor to share this hour with you, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's it's been a, an absolute pleasure.
0: Pleasure for me as well. Until next time. Until
1: next time. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. But to but Goodbye.